show you a house that I visited um, in about 1990. I was um, asked to go and visit this house because somebody had died, a lady had died. And so I put a suit on and a tie and, um, I, you know, I'd been asked to do the funeral. So I went to this house. I had no idea who these people were. And the lady who had died was living with her sister. Now, it's a long time ago and there's a lot of details I've forgotten. But I don't think the lady who died was really that old. She may have been in her mid to late 50s, early 60s, and her sister was a pretty similar age. So I, I knocked on the door and I went in, and, and the first thing that I noticed was just how cold this woman was. I mean, she was like ice cold. Now, I experienced a lot of death in my life in a lot of different ways, and certainly as a pastor, and it's not unusual for people to be acting strange and different and all, you know, in all different sorts of ways. So that was okay, so we went and sat down. She seemed visibly uncomfortable with me being there, and um, I explained to her what we needed to do. And the thing that I really needed to get her help, I had to ask her what she wanted in the service, and she had no idea. And I, I had to speak about her sister, who I'd never met, which is actually not that hard to do if somebody answers all the questions the right way, okay? So we're sitting down, and I said to her, you know, I asked all the details, when was she born and where did you grow up and who were your parents and what did she do? She worked here, by the way, Coates Patents, okay? Maybe in this room, I don't know. And once these details were out of the way, I said, well, that's fine. Um, tell me about your sister. She said, there's nothing to say. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to get up tomorrow or the next day, whenever it was, and say something, and I, I really need your help. So tell me about her. She said, there's nothing to tell. I said, okay, um, where did she work? She told me she worked here. I asked her what she did. She told me what she did. And I said, well, what happened after work? I mean, what did she do? She said, well, she came home. I said, okay, and what did she do when she came home? She said she made her dinner. And I said, well, did you guys talk? She said, no. I, I said, well, did she watch TV? She said, no. Did she read books? She said, no. Did she have friends? She said, no. I'm saying, well, just tell me what she did. She says, I don't know. She would come home, she would make a dinner, she would go to her room, and that's it. She didn't read, she didn't listen to music, she didn't watch TV. She didn't have friends. And I said, well, <laughs> what am I going to say? She said, nothing. She said, nobody will be there. And I said, will you be there? Silence. So, at this point, and I'm getting pretty desperate, okay, um, I'm the one that's doing the dying in this place, that's what I felt like. <laughs> I, um, I said to her, well, um, did, did some, was there something wrong with your sister? Did she have something she was born with? You know, is there something I don't understand? She said, no. I said, did something happen to her? 
that maybe changed her? And she said, yes. And I said, what was that? She said, I'm not telling you. So I said to her, this is what I'm getting, you know, this is kind of really scary, right? I said to her, did that thing happen to you? And she said, you can leave my house now. Um, the funeral was not really a big event. Um, I tried on several occasions to meet with her and talk with her. She just refused. And... Um, I guess she died sometime. I guess somebody buried her and I guess they didn't know kind of what to say either. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that somebody's life and not just somebody, maybe two somebodies, would be so incredibly isolated to the point where she may as well have been in solitary confinement. I don't know that her life would have been that different. And I think of all of the things that she missed out on and all of the relationships and the love and the affection and a sister. And, and you know, it, it's just tragic, isn't it? And, and the thought that really grabbed me at the time, and I, I guess I've thought about her on occasions. I mean, I've never met this woman. It's kind of strange. I didn't, I've never even seen a picture of the woman who died. There were no pictures in the house or anything like that. I just wish that somebody somewhere along the line could have intervened, you know, and said, can we, can we do something? Can we help you? Somehow this isn't right. Can we... But it never happened. And so there was this life, from what I can understand, that was totally unlived, and then her sister just careered down the same path. Sometimes things happen to people. And those people are kind of like us. I mean, just today, for instance, we had a fall up on stage, not trying to make a big deal of it, things like that happen. I've only tripped a thousand times, okay? Nobody was expecting that. Nobody was expecting the fact that I'd walk out of the bathroom with my fly open either. <laughs> Thank you very much, the gentleman who was kind enough to um, bring that to my attention. If I'd been up here like that, would have shaved years off your life, I understand. <laughs> but none of us know what's happening next. And things happen all the time. And in fact, they're guaranteed. We just don't know which ones they are and we don't know when they're coming. And most of the time, we can't actually do anything about it. And so that means when those things happen to us, we need some help. Because they can be really so bad for us that they can change the trajectory of our life and shut us down and we can get stuck. And sometimes when some people get stuck, like I'm thinking with that woman, they don't get unstuck unless somebody knows how to intervene and help them. And I don't, I don't mean somebody professional, though I'm... I'm kind of thinking there may have been a bit of professional help needed there. I'm, I'm meaning just somebody to come up and give them a hug and say, I care. I care that your life sucks. You know, I really care. And sometimes people don't let you, by the way. <laughs> Her sister wouldn't let me. 
she wouldn't let other people I tried to organise to go there. Right, it wasn't just me. She didn't hate me. She hated everybody. But you know, sometimes we've just got to understand this. And we had that reading from Ecclesiastes a moment ago, and everybody thinks it's a beautiful reading and it's so poetic, and it's horrible. It's a terrible reading. Let's just see it. I've got controls today. <laughs> Is that it? No, that's it. Well, wow. pretty impressive, huh? I was expecting it to go wrong. It would have really fit if it did, wouldn't it? You know? Just, just look at these words that are so poetic and so beautiful, but just think about them and the tragedy and the awfulness. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens. That sounds lovely. Sounds like a picnic. Let's go and have a picnic, everybody, and swim and eat watermelon. <laughs> I eat watermelon when I have picnics. Um, there's a time to be born. Well, that's pretty cool. We've got Stanford here today, which is wonderful. I never get a welcome, but anyway. Um, <laughs> he is quite a special child, I will add. <laughs> okay. But... Um, it's, you know, that's wonderful, there's a time to born, but a breath later, a time to die. Do you ever ch talk to anybody about death? I once went to a big dinner party and the subject of death came up and it wasn't a very good dinner party after that. Nobody was really very happy. There's a time to plant, that's positive, but then there's a time you pull up things. There's a time to kill. You feeling pretty warm about that one? <laughs> There's a time to heal, that's the counterpart. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. There's a time to weep. You enjoy weeping? There's a time to laugh. That would be good if you do it when I'm trying to be funny. Um, but then there's a time to mourn. And a time to dance. There's a time to... Oh, okay, I'm going, bit, I'm going a bit slow here. I might come back next week and try the same message and see if I can <laughs> fix it or something. Yeah, we're on a bit of a different... Okay, okay no, we're, no, we're good, we're good. It's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather, a time to embrace, which is great, but a time to refrain from embracing... I love having my wife around and giving her a hug or my kids. My kids are grown up, but I still love giving them a hug. Isn't it great? It'd be awful if they pushed me away. It'd be awful if I didn't want to hug them. There's a time for searching, but there's a time for giving up. Who likes giving up? You know, when you really want to do something, you think something's a really great idea, but you give up in disgust. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. We're moving. The throwing away time is coming very soon. There's a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time for love. But there's a time for hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I mean, you hear what I'm saying here? There's hate and war and silence and throwing away and refraining from embracing and then there's weeping and mourning and killing and... <laughs> hey, welcome to our world. And, and one of the really scary things is 
that we don't know when one of these things are going to happen. If it's the embracing, it's really good. But if it's being pushed away or if it's... And when these things happen, we, we don't handle them so well. I guess I want to go back and, if I'm successful... Oh, um, okay, it's working. Okay. Okay, death, let's talk about death, okay? Let's talk about death. Have you actually met anybody who thinks it's a really cool thing? Um, I know a lot about death. My, my mother died when I was eight, and I watched her slowly die for three years. And I saw the fear and the terror on her face as she thought about what it would be like to have two young kids without a mother. And then I watched my father, and they both pretended so hard that everything was okay, and I watched him suffer as she suffered, and then when she died, he got stuck. He didn't know what to do. We had a living room in our home that he turned into a shrine for her, and we couldn't go in there for like five years, lest anything be moved, and he'd just go and sit there on his own and cry. Things like this really get to people and bother people and change their lives. And sometimes these things, depending on who we are and our circumstance and who's around us, can have these incredibly awful effects on people's lives. And some of the effects can actually be nearly permanent. And that unless somebody helps them and shows them actually how to deal with it. Now, when I say shows them how to deal with it, when, when it comes to death, you, you actually never get over that. You don't. Life's like a jigsaw, and once a piece goes, there's a piece missing. But you do learn to live if, if, if somebody can help you and encourage you. And so what's really important when we read this, we, we need to understand some things. We need to understand that these things will either happen to us, some of them, all of them, or they're going to happen to the people who are actually sitting next to you, around you, your family, your friends, the people you work with. And when you hear about the tragedy in their lives, you'll go, oh no, that's terrible, and you'll be really concerned. And then the way life is, you'll kind of move on but there's a really big chance that they won't and they'll be stuck. And sometimes people get more stuck than others and they need help. And we need to, in a sense, affirm the reality of this is how life works and how it doesn't work, if I can put it that way, and understand how much we need to help each other and care for each other. I, I was very fortunate as a kid. We, we had relatives who used to harass my father and try to get him back into life, because he had young kids. And um, in the end, he sort of somehow got into a different gear. It took five years, okay? And I, I really loved these aunts. It used to drive me... I didn't like them a lot, because they were sort of, you know, poking their noses in all over the place and trying to get me to wear clothes I didn't like. And See, when you don't have a mum, you can go wild, and it's pretty cool for a while, okay? <laughs> so they wanted to come in. You know, my dad was 64 or something, right? He, you know, he didn't have a handle on life, let alone kids, okay, at that stage. Now, 
you know, but it was good there were people who could come in and, and, and do some things. Um, and, and we've kind of got to understand that. You see, one of the big problems of our age is that we think we can really have control over these things. And it's a lie, it's not true. Because the Bible's saying that these things are real and they're going to come and they're going to visit us. They're going to visit us. And there's no insulation from it. Let me just... Um, looks like I'm stuck now. <laughs> oh. I don't know what's going on here. Um, simplify. Uh, <laughs> let me just read to you um, some other parts of Scripture. What am I doing here? Yep. What are we doing? I think there's a conspiracy. <laughs> okay, don't worry about the screen. We're just trying this out today. We'll get it right next week. Let me read you a bit more from that passage. And you really need to read this, the, these bits extra to actually be able to um, put it into perspective, okay? So I'm, I'm really reading from Ecclesiastes verses three, chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. This is what it says. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid upon the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear Him. Whatever has already been and whatever has been before and, and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. What's that really mean? What it's saying if we go back to to verse 9, it, it raises this question, what do workers gain from their toil? And it's not actually really talking about what happens with your work, but what outcome can we have from thinking we can control things? And the answer is actually none. We don't have the power over many of these things. You and I don't cause wars. You and I don't really, most of the time, choose when we die. We don't choose when we're born. These things are something that has been set in place by God, believe it or not, and we can make some choices and we have some freedom to do different things, but realistically, these things will visit us. And so, what we have to do is start to increasingly understand that we just don't control our universes and things are going to happen and they are going to happen whether we like it or not and somehow we have to factor that in because when something really bad does happen, and it's so easy for us to think, well, that's it, I cannot survive this, I cannot adapt to this in any way, I cannot continue to love my kids or my wife or keep going to my job, and we get so overwhelmed. And what this is telling us is that those things are in place and this is the world that you and I live in. And we have to accept that, okay? We really do, as hard as it is. And when it actually says, um, I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race, this is what I'm talking about. 
It is burdensome living in a fragile and uncertain world. We do live in a broken world. It was broken because of sin. And we, in a sense, bear the effects of that brokenness. And there's no escaping or insulation from them. Even as a Christian, these things still happen. Unless Jesus returns, every one of us is actually going to die in this room at this point. Hopefully not today. That would be awful. But the reality is these things will happen. And when it says in verse 11, everybody thinks, oh, this is such a lovely verse. Let me read you one of the most frustrating verses in the whole of the Bible and maybe rethink about how you think about it. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Doesn't it sound lovely? Wouldn't you love that to be on your grave? He has made everything beautiful in its time. Just think about what it really means. He's made every be- everything beautiful in its time, not your time or my time. Okay? These things have got a time and they're going to fall into place and happen and whatever. And somehow you and I are just going to be there when they do. And we don't get to choose when those times are. We don't get to sit down with God and negotiate our birth, our death, and what's going to happen in between. We can pray and God can intervene in certain ways, but certain things are still going to happen. And people are going to go through things and experience lots and lots of pain. Later this year, I I will have been married for 33 years, and I know my wife deserves a medal. She thinks she deserves a medal too, by the way. (laughs) She won't get it from me. That's the problem. (laughs) But one of the things that is so great about our marriage, it's not perfect. I really love her a lot. And she, she really likes me a lot, which I find amazing, but I like it. And the thing that troubles me is that I like her more and more as the years go on, but one of us will go at some point. You know what I'm saying? And that bothers me. But I need to understand it's part of it. And I need to understand these things happen. I need to understand that God has got a plan and that I can survive it or she can survive it. Maria's idea is that we're all up in a plane, we lose oxygen, nobody is conscious and the whole family goes down together with our cat as well, okay? (laughs) Our cat's very important to us. Um, People in our small group understand that. But you hear what I'm saying? Some of the things in this life are so wonderful, but some of the other things make the wonderful things kind of so difficult, don't they? It's hard, isn't it? So what does he say? He set eternity in our hearts... Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning of the end. That's the frustration, isn't it? We've got a sense in the way we've been created to want to know about the beginning, the middle and the end. You and I, look, you and I think, boy, I'd like to know what's happening next Friday. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, maybe it wouldn't be, by the way. Maybe it'd be downright scary. But we've got this desire to know the future and the past. We're, We're made in God's image, but because of the fall... We don't get the knowledge, and so we're kind of like doing a lot of living in the dark. That's kind of how it is, feeling our way in the dark. And so, you know, what, what's the solution? There's like a two, two-part strategy here. What's the solution? He says, well, you know, in the midst of it, we have to decide to live, and we have to decide to make the best of it and be joyous and to trust in God. And that's the trusting God's the second part. He says in verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live. We have to make choices despite the carnage, despite the brokenness, despite the mess. 
to be like Steve and the crowd up here who've decided we're going to make a difference, okay? And even though these things are going to happen, I'm still going to live my life this way and, and I'm, I'm going to make sure and try I don't get stuck and I'm going to try and help other people from getting stuck and I'm going to have to pray and hope that if I get stuck, some of you are going to come and help me get unstuck. That's why we do life together. That's what churches are about and that's why we actually work and serve in the community this is what he says in, in verse 14 and 15. I'm going to just move on a little bit. He says that, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to, to it and nothing can be taken from it. And then he says, God does it so that people will fear him. And that's kind of the answer. You and I have to face this broken world on our knees, asking for God's help. And trusting in him and, and believing that when these dark things happen, that he is above it and he is beyond it and he will hold our hand and he will see us through. And on that basis, we keep getting up and we keep doing the things we've got to do. Sometimes we do it with a very heavy and broken heart. And if anybody's lost somebody here, and it's hard to think there's a lot of you who haven't, you still wear that brokenness. You know what I'm saying? It, there's some things that just don't easily heal. What's so important is that we appreciate this about the world for ourselves and we care about each other. We have to care about each other. We have to understand these things hurt everybody in big ways. We may not understand while somebody gets particularly stuck in the thing that they do. Okay? That's kind of changes for most people a bit. But it's not, I'll help you if I can understand your pain because we don't understand somebody else's pain when it's going on, but it's rather, you're a human being, this is the world, God said this is going to be hard, I'm going to try and help you through it. We, we need to be the person who actually stands back and stands outside of it in a way to help the person stuck to get out of it. I watched a, a horrific movie this week, it was a documentary. I'm not going to recommend it because the language in it was not only foul, the, the, the documentary was about a man who was so broken, so incredibly broken and so angry and so hurt. His, his life was just pain beyond belief. And the, the documentary that's being filmed is uh, taking him from Moscow, where he lives, I think, to New York, where he actually gets an award from the United Nations, this guy, okay? And he actually gets an award from the United Nations because he saved the world, literally. Back in 1983, I remember in the newspapers, a, a Korean airplane jet flew over Soviet, Soviet uh, what was the Soviet Union, then Sakhalin Island, very sensitive listening places for the Soviet Empire. And the Soviets shot down this passenger plane and about 200 people died. And at this point, the world has probably never been closer to nuclear war. Reagan was saying things like President Reagan was, I would rather my children be dead than grow up under communism. And this thing was so tense. And so this man who's in the documentary, whose name is Stanislav Petrov, never heard of him, nobody's ever heard of him. Maybe you have, but he is a colonel 
in the Air Force, but he's not really a military guy. He's like an analyst or a scientist. I'm not really sure. He was kind of yelling and screaming so much, it's kind of hard to know what he really did, really. But on this particular day, about six weeks after this plane has been shot down, he's in charge of the Soviet Union's nuclear watch place for American missiles coming in. Okay? You know where this is going? And on this particular night, when these tensions are incredibly high, this sophisticated equipment, it's kind of like this room with screens and there are satellite feeds coming in and heat sensors and, you know, every bit of technology the world owns is in this room to detect when an American missile will open its silo and start coming to the Soviet Union. And it's a night like any other night, except all of a sudden, at some point in time, a signal comes up and there is an incoming ICBM. And one of these has twice, approximately twice, the amount of power of every bomb dropped in the Second World War, including the atomic bombs. So he's sitting in this room and he's in charge of it, and all of a sudden the screen comes up, there is an incoming nuclear missile. And he's going, check the computers, make sure our systems are working. They come back, everything is working properly. And then all of a sudden, a second one goes off. And th there's just pandemonium. And he, he just wants to make sure, because if he picks up the phone and he tells whoever's on the other end, which I guess is the head of the USSR, he'll tell them to push the button. They can't stop him coming in, but they will retaliate. And their retaliation is assured to kill 150 million Americans. So this is happening, and then a third one goes off, and a fourth one goes off, and a fifth one goes off, and a sixth one goes off, and here is this guy who, who by all accounts, should pick up a phone and say, look, we need to push the button. And, you know, they do a reenactment, and, you know, he, he's kind of gone crazy. And he chooses to tell them not to retaliate. Okay? He, he won't do it. He won't do it because he has some knowledge. He, he can't believe they would just have sequential launches. He thinks if they're going to push the button, they're going to have thousands coming all at once. He doesn't like computers, like Paul Morrison down here. Um, <laughs> and he just, he just decides not to do it. And he's standing there, and these things are travelling at 15,000 miles an hour, and he is just expecting, possibly, for his whole world to be obliterated. Because he said, if, if, if we retaliate, then our retaliation <laughs> will cause the... You know what I'm saying? It would have wiped out the whole world. And he chooses not to do it. And nobody ever thanks him. And his wife dies and he becomes an alcoholic. And but one guy, because he wasn't in the, in the military, he didn't follow the order, you know what I'm saying? He just had some belief that this could not really be true. And he was the guy who wasn't stuck. He said that if any of the other guys had been on duty, they were military guys, they just would have followed the order and all of a sudden the world would have been destroyed. Very few of us are going to be in a room like that ever. <laughs> and very few of us will ever be the people who halt a nuclear strike or whatever. But we can be the people somehow 
who stand back, who are not caught up, who make decisions that will change the lives of other people and change them irrevocably. And I believe somehow behind his actions there is God protecting the world, without, without a doubt. But behind our actions, there's God protecting other people. So be assured, there'll be plenty of places to get stuck for you and for others. Accept it. Trust God. And trust Him also to be the compassionate, loving people who step in and just try to put an arm around somebody and try and understand. Because you may just help them become unstuck and they can get on with their lives too. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we, we just want to thank you so much that you are with us and that Jesus, you died on the cross for our sins and you have risen for our resurrection. We just want to thank you so much, Jesus, that you love us and you came into this world so that we might have freedom. Lord, it's a difficult world we live in. We understand this. But we want to pray, Father. We want to pray that you would help us to understand that in the brokenness there is hope, that we can help others, and that in the midst of all of this carnage around us, that we can be Christ, changing the trajectory of other people's lives just with our own simple words and our own loving actions. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you in your name. Amen. Thank you.